And tonight we're going to look at King Saul. So turn your Bible to 1 Samuel 15. And if you're new to Calvary, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, usually. But tonight, like I said, I started working on uh, chapter 19 this morning, and I just realized there's just no way. So, uh, yeah, I'm, starting, so I'm teaching once tonight, uh, tomorrow night, three times on Saturday, and then uh, once on Sunday. So let's open the word of prayer, and we'll dig into God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, Lord. We ask, Lord, now as we go to your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Uh, Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here, none by chance, all by divine appointment. And as we look at this subject that we all struggle with, which is putting the flesh to death, it's a battle we fight every single day between the Spirit and the flesh. And Lord, help may we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Help us to put the flesh to death. Help us to be men and women of God that walk in faithful obedience to your word. And so, Lord, be our teacher tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, yes. Bible study next week is on Wednesday. Uh, the reason that it's on Wednesday is the school is having a play on Thursday, and so they will be here on Thursday night. So next week, the midweek study is on Wednesday. So if you show up on Thursday, you'll get to watch a play. <laughs> but we won't be having a Bible study that night. And Marlea, get well soon. We miss you. All right. First Samuel 15. So before we get into the text, let me give you some background. You've heard me say it a text taken out of context, so I get left a con. Amen. So we need to understand what's going on. So the major, some major players in tonight's text are the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are known in Scripture for being as evil as they get. And a little background on the Amalekites. Amalekites in the Bible are a type of the flesh. They were descendants of Esau. Who's Esau? Who knows who? Who's Esau's twin, twin brother? Jacob. Jacob was, even though he was a flawed man, he was a man of the Spirit, and he was a man who we know that, again, later his name became Israel when he wrestled with the Lord. Esau was a man of the flesh, so much so that he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Worst trade ever, right? <laughs> he traded his birthright where you got a double portion of the inheritance and got you know, all the blessings that would come from the Lord for being the firstborn, and he traded it for a bowl of soup. That's a man of the flesh. You know what the flesh does? The flesh wants to satisfy the immediate with no thought about the eternal. It wants what I, whatever, I have to get, whatever I want here and now to feed my flesh with no thoughts of what the consequences will be in the future. And isn't that what our flesh does? Amen? It, it'll feed itself and say, I'll pay for it later. And again, often the consequences are far greater. Now, the Amalekites, we know, one of the reasons God's heart was set against them, it's in Deuteronomy. I was going to read it, but in Deuteronomy, what happens there is, as they're wandering through the wilderness, the Amalekites who were encamped out in that wilderness area, what they would do as the, as the Israelites went by, they would wait for the, the, the sickly and the old that were at the back of the, of the line, if you will, and they would come out of the mountains and they would kill them and take all their stuff and flee back into the mountains. And the Lord said to them, because of what you have done, I have seen what you have done. And because of what you have done, I am going to bring righteous judgment against you. Now, a lot of times we're going to see later in today's text, there's going to be a command to kill all the Amalekites. And there's a lot of people when they see stuff like this in the Old Testament, they're like, that's not a very nice God. Why would he wipe out an entire group of people? Well, he warned the Amalekites 300 years earlier. 
They had 300 years to repent, and for 300 years, they continued to walk in open rebellion against Almighty God. Now, I'm telling you all of this because they're going to be the major emphasis on a picture of the flesh, and we're going to see how do we put the flesh to death. We're going to see another uh, interaction with the Amalekites as we're going through the text here in a moment. And then finally, we're going to see Saul, who's told by the prophet Samuel to go out and wipe out the Amalekites. So when you think of the Amalekites, again, descendants of Esau, type of the flesh, evil, evil people who went after the weakest among them, murderers, and God's righteous judgment was upon them. They had 300 years to repent. So for us, I titled the message tonight, the highest form of worship putting the flesh to death, a call to obedience. Again, every day, and I've shared this with you often, when I wake up in the morning, my prayer is always the same. It starts with, yes, Lord. Then I ask him to fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit. I pray for divine appointments and opportunities to share my faith. And I know that I can't do that in my own strength. And when I look in the mirror, when I shave in the morning, I say, you got to die. Amen? That, that, that person's got to die every day. And so we're going to see that spiritual battle taking place. And King Saul is going to be the one that we learn from. And again, we can learn through other people's experience. It doesn't have to be our experience. Experience is a great teacher. But we're going to see the, the choices that Saul makes, sadly, are going to end in his demise. Again, when I was a youth pastor, I used to use the analogy, you have a fleshly tiger and a spiritual tiger. Which one wins the battle? The one you feed the most? And if all we do is feed our flesh, if we don't spend time in the Word, if we don't spend time in prayer, if we're not in fellowship, then the flesh is going to run over the top of us because we can't overcome it in our own strength. We need to walk in the Spirit. The Bible says if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Amen? And so as we come to tonight's text, I want to say a couple things about the flesh, and then we'll get into the actual outline. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In Romans 8, 13 and 14, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as who are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Galatians 5, 17 says this, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not you do no you do things that you do not wish. And so that, that battle every day between the spirit and the flesh, and which one are you feeding, which one is kind of in control at the moment. And again, as born-again believers, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And when, we're, when we are tempted, the Bible tells us that we're tempted by the devil, right? And what are the three enemies that we face? the world, the flesh, and the devil. Amen? And so our flesh, I believe, is the enemy we fight with the most. Too often we want to blame somebody else for our sin. Most of the time it's just plain stinking me. Can I get an amen to that? Sometimes, you know, the devil can't make you do anything. Flip Wilson was wrong, but right? So the devil will tempt you. And again, the world around us will also tempt you, but it's the flesh that we deal with most often. And so the Amalekites, as I said, are a type or a picture of that flesh. And we'll see three things that are needed to have victory over the flesh. I want to say this. We're going to go through these three things that are very simple. We're going to see them all in uh, the life of 
of Saul and well in the life of the Amalekites. And these are going to seem really rudimentary. And I'm not trying to give you like seven steps of financial freedom or three ways to overcome the flesh. Because guys, we can't do any of this if we're not walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Without him, we can do nothing, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So here's the three things we're going to see, all of them in connection with defeating the Amalekites, the type of the flesh. Number one, prayer. Three ways to over, have victory over the flesh and its desire, prayer. Come humbly before the throne of grace. Surrender your life daily to the Lord, lifting up holy hands in worship. Recognize our desperate need for the Lord and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And the only way we can have victory over the flesh and its desire. So prayer, the, Lord's, the word of God says, you shall make my father's house a house of prayer. And you know what? Our prayer life is so often clearly connected to how we're doing spiritually. I rarely have people that are really struggling and their, their, their marriage is a mess and their life's a mess and they have a, a, a great prayer life because too often we're so disconnected from God that we're doing things in our own flesh and it becomes a disaster. So not only do we need to pray, but we need fellowship. The Bible says, forsake not the gathering yourselves together and all the more as the day approaches. I've had four or five phone calls this week, all counseling over the phone and one in person. And in every case, the person that's struggling is not really in fellowship. All of them. Like, you know, I ran into one guy who used to come to church here, and I'm like, oh, where are you fellowshipping? Well, I haven't really been going anywhere. How's that, how's that going? Oh, not, not good. Shocker. Can I get any men to that? Now, look, the Bible says a three-chord strand is not easily broken. And one of the things that Satan wants to do is isolate you. And when do you sin the most? When you're alone. Amen. Temptation comes when you're on your own. You know, you've heard that analogy. You've got a bunch of hot coals. You take one coal out and you set it over here. What happens to it? It goes out. You take that coal and put it back in with the hot, what is it happens to it? It gets, it gets stoked again. Amen. And so as believers, we need fellowship. And not only that, if you're not in fellowship, you're not using your gifts to minister to somebody else. And you're allowing other people with their gifts to minister to you. Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. Amen. So we need fellowship. And then thirdly, shocker, the word of God. Amen? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we're going to see the Amalekites, types of the flesh. And we're going to see prayer, defeating the Amalekites. We're going to see fellowship, defeating the Amalekites. And we're going to see the word of God uh, literally killing the king of the Amalekites. So let's begin there looking at First uh, Samuel, and it says there in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 15, again, putting the flesh to death, right? The highest form, uh, you know, call to obedience, looking at the highest form of worship, which is, of course, obedience. It says in verse 1, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. So quick background, the history of Saul in chapter 8, Israel wanted a king. You guys remember this? They cried out for a king. And God basically told him, you have a king, it's me. You know what? I, I would love to vote out all the politicians and let God be on the throne. Can I get an amen to that? But they're crying out for just the opposite. They have God on the throne and they want a king that they can see and touch. Why? Because all the other nations had kings. So they cried out for a king. And the Lord warns them in 1 Samuel 8, heed my voice 
of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, he's talking to Samuel, but they've rejected me that I should reign over them. So Samuel goes on in chapter 8 to warn Israel of how the king they desire will do evil in the sight of the Lord. He will place them into heavy bondage. He will tax them heavily, sound familiar, to take their sons and daughters from them to serve him, and they will eventually cry out for his removal. So he gave them all the warnings. If you get this king all these things are going to happen. You know what they did? Give us a king anyway. But you know what? We're as dumb as they are. Because the word of God will warn us about things that if, if the way, you know, way of the transgressor is hard. Amen? The wages of sin is death. And we know what the word of God says and we'll do it anyway. And then we'll be shocked when there's consequences. And that's exactly what's going to happen to the children of Israel. So they cried out for the king. And there were several reasons, again, that they wanted a king. They wanted to look like other nations. Uh, the nations all around them were a great threat, and they felt like a king would give them security. And again, God was their king. And they would choose King Saul over God the Father, just as you know, many years later, they would choose Barabbas over Jesus. In chapter 9, they chose Saul to be king. And you know why they chose him? Here's the five reasons. He was strong. He was yoked. We want a yoked king. We need a yoked king, Right? He was actually humble. When they first made him king in chapter uh, 9, he hides in the equipment. When they're, when they're supposed to bring him out to be king, he's in the back hiding because he's, he's, you know, he's, he's a humble guy, at least to start. He had a new heart. He had spiritual power. And he had the prayer and guidance of Samuel the prophet. So from an outward appearance, this looks like the guy. We'll see later that he was head and shoulders in height above everyone else. He was as close to the... Uh, you know, uh, Jerusalem or Israel's version of Goliath that they could have. And we know that he wimps out when the fight with Goliath takes place later. So, so King Saul is picked, and he's picked, for, sadly, for all the wrong reasons. When you get to chapter 11 and 12, uh, despite God's warnings, he wins the first couple of battles. So they go out into battle, and they win. And the people are feeling pretty good about themselves. Yeah, see, told you, we got a king. That's why we're winning. He's yoked. He's good looking. He's scaring everybody else away. I knew getting a king was the right thing to do. And sometimes when we choose to sin, we'll, we'll seemingly get away with it for a while. Amen? Like, well, I did it. Nothing bad happened. I guess I'll just keep doing it. God's grace is not God's permission. Amen? But sadly, before long, again, his heart becomes a heart of impatience pride and disobedience. In chapter 13, they're getting ready to fight against the Philistines. And what happens is the other army is mounting up and they're not supposed to go into battle until the priest makes a sacrifice. And so he's sitting there and he's getting antsy. Where's Samuel? He needs to get her, make the sacrifice so we can go wipe out those Philistines. So what does he do? He gets impatient. So he takes the place of the high priest and goes and makes the sacrifice himself. That would be like you trying to die on the cross for yourself. Amen. And so what he does is in direct disobedience to what God had commanded, and he's doing it because he's impatient. Now, none of us have ever disobeyed God because we were impatient. Amen. Isn't that one of the biggest struggles we can have? Lord, give me patience right now. I mean, we have a mentality where we just, we, we don't, patience is hard. I'd rather have God just tell me no than wait, amen? And so they, he became impatient. Secondly, he became prideful. He made a vow in chapter 14, a foolish vow of his soldiers that they could not eat. 
They're fighting a battle against a great enemy, and he's telling them, you can't eat anything until we win. And if you'll remember, Jonathan, his son, is walking along, and he sticks out his spear, and he has a little bit of honey, and he puts it in his mouth, and Saul wants to kill his own son because he ate honey while fighting in the midst of a battle. So here's this man that, again, started off well, looked pretty good from the outside, but it didn't take very long. Now he's impatient, he's prideful, and now we're going to see in tonight's text that he's just going to straight up disobey God. And that's kind of what typically happens, right? You go from one little compromise to another little compromise, and before you know it, you're so far away from the Lord. So it says there, look, I'm the one that came and made you king over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. So Samuel reminds him, hey, I'm the one that anointed you king. I'm the one that God speaks for the Lord. They didn't have a completed revelation of the Bible like we do. They use prophets. Samuel tells him that this is what the Lord wants, and he's going to give him a direct command. Verse 2. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up out of Egypt. So what I just described to you, this had taken place 300 years earlier. But God was showing them grace and giving them an opportunity to repent. And instead, he says, okay, this is it. I've given them 300 years. It's time to bring righteous judgment. And Saul, you're going to be the king to do it. I want you to go down and you're going to wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. By the way, how many Amalekites are there today? That would be zero. But sadly, we're going to see him not obey God. We're going to see, by the way, partial obedience is disobedience. Amen? Partial obedience is disobedience. Doing half of what you were called by God to do is being disobedient to the Lord. Now, what's interesting, how do we put this this warlike group to death. How do we do that? I'm going to read something to you out of Exodus, and then we'll get back to this text. You don't need to turn there, but you can look it up later. So Exodus uh, chapter 17, we see an interaction that Moses has with the Amalekites. And so what happens is, as they're going out to fight, uh, the Amalekites come upon them. In chapter 8, it says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said, and they fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up on the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. But when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. So they're fighting the flesh. And whenever he had his hands up like this, they had victory. And when his hands went down, they were overrun. And when we're fighting the flesh, when we're in a place of prayer, when our focus is on the Lord, we're in a place of worship, we can have victory over the flesh. Amen? But when we get weary and when we cease to be surrendered fully to God in a place of of prayer and worship, then the enemy will run over the top of us. You know, I love that in the Bible... You have New Testament principles seen in Old Testament events. And I can think of no greater chapter in the Bible than this chapter here and in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, the greatest picture of how to have victory over the flesh. And we see first there holding up his hands. Now watch what happens. Read the rest of that there. It says, but Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him. 
And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands on one side and on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So here's what happened. He's got his hands up and they're realizing really quickly he's standing up on the top. The army can see him. And when his hands are up, they're having victory. His hands drop down. The enemy starts winning. And so finally, what do they do? Aaron and her come. They put him on a stone. So he's sitting up on, on it to, to brace himself. And they got a guy on each side holding up his hands. And they won't let his hands drop because he couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't do it without fellowship. Amen? A three-cord strand is not easily broken. And they held up his hands until the battle was won. And guys, this is what we need. We need people who will come and hold up our hands. Amen? We need people who will come alongside us when we're weary and we're weak. We need to be able to pick up the phone and share with somebody the struggle we're going through. And so they had that victory over the Amalekites. And that first victory that we saw here came through prayer and it came through fellowship. That's what it's a picture of, having defeated again the flesh. And so he's reminding them, we're we're being reminded here of what had happened in the past with the Amalekites. How did they have victory? And yet they're still alive. They're They're not gone yet. And the exhortation here by Samuel is that now it's time for that job to be finished. It's time for the Amalekites to be completely wiped out. And it was God's command. So he tells them again in verse three, now go and attack Amalek. And utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, these are verses that as a pastor, when people want to talk to me about the Bible, they love bringing up verses like this. Oh, you're against abortion? Look what the Lord did. He wiped out a bunch of infants. The Amalekites wiped out every Amalekite on the planet. What kind of loving God is that? Let me just say this. I believe every Amalekite infant that died in that battle went straight to heaven. How about that? And I think that's far better than being an Amalekite, amen, and being in battle with the Lord. But what he was, he was making it very clear that the Amalekites, again, this picture of the flesh, you cannot let it live. It has to be destroyed because that battle that took place back in Exodus, look, they're back full force. And again, for us, we can't, we're going to see that holding on to part of the flesh, holding on to the things of the past, making excuses for that old way of life. It will bring destruction if we don't put it to death and we cannot do it without the Lord. You know, the Bible says, be holy for I am holy. And God's judgment will come sooner or later. And they've been given 300 years to repent, but they would not do it. It says, so Saul gathered together and numbered them in Talim 200 thousand foot soldiers, and 10,000 men of Judah. So overcome the Amalekites, Saul used the best of his resources. And to overcome the flesh, the only way we can is to have the best resource we have, which is the Holy Spirit. Amen? The only way we can have victory over the flesh is to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. We can't do it any other way. Can't do it in our own strength. We can't just try harder. And the power of the Holy Spirit The way that happens, there needs to be less of us and more of him. Amen? Jesus said of men born among women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he might increase. So if the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus, outside of himself, said there's got to be less of me and more of him, we know that's true of everybody in this room. Amen? Got to look in the mirror, got to die to yourself, put the flesh to death. Verse 5, and Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. 
And Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Now you'll notice, here's the grace of God, because the Kenites, uh, one of the Kenites was a man by the name of Jethro. Jethro was Moses' father-in-law. So Moses, this is Moses' father-in-law. He's married to a Kenite, and the Kenites had shown grace to God's people, and so God's going to deliver them out before he brings righteous judgment. Sounds kind of like the rapture, doesn't it? He's going to bring out those who've been faithful and then bring the righteous judgment upon those who had been walking in open rebellion against God. So we need to be removed again from, again, the world. And it says, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur to the east of Egypt. Sounds good so far, right? Kill them all. You need to wipe them out. They're evil, vile people. They've been slaughtering everyone, the Taliban, if you will, right? And they're wiping them off the face of the earth. And he goes out, he mounts up his army, and then take a look at verse 8. He also took Agag, king of the Malachites, what? Alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So he kept the king. So he killed everybody else and he kept the king. Now, one of the reasons that kings love to keep foreign kings is they love to parade them through to their people in chains and, and so that uh, people will praise them and they'll look amazing in the eyes of their kingdom. Well, Agag, if, if the Malachites are the flesh, then Agag's the king of the flesh. And the king of the flesh to me is a type or a picture of that, that one sin that's got a hold of your life that you just don't want to let go of. I remember one of my coworkers, she said, you know, she would come to the Bible study at work. And one time she said, you know, I want to give my life to the Lord. That means I'm going to have to give up uh, getting drunk on the weekends. I just like to drink liquor. I like to drink martinis. I like to party, you know, and I, you know, I don't want to let go of the party. Agag is the party. Amen. It's that one sin that it's, I had another guy that gave his life to the Lord. He wanted to give his life to the Lord, but he's like, well, does that mean I have to quit sleeping with my girlfriend? Yeah. Yeah. You need to find a godly woman and get married and honor the Lord. Oh, I don't think I want to do that. And you know what I say to both of them? You know, I'm a little direct. So you want to go to hell for sleeping with your girlfriend, really? That's the trade-off you want. I didn't get one amen in the room on that one. But the reality, so you want to trade martinis for heaven, right? For hell. You want so an attorney separated. Guys, God's word is keeping us from harm, not from fun. Amen? He knows what's best for us. And so he brings back Agag. I had a guy that got saved, and I was doing pre-marriage counseling with him. And, I, and I'm talking to him. He's a new believer. And he goes, so I have to quit looking at porn? Yeah, bro, you got to quit looking at porn, man. Put that thing to death. And his wife, his soon-to-be wife goes, he's got a huge porn collection. Bonfire this afternoon. Can I get him into that? But the point is, there's, there, we can always, like, I'll get, rid of, I'll get rid of this, but this one thing over here, I can't let go of that. That's the one area that, that's that one pet sin, that's that one fleshly thing. I mean, God will, and the enemy will say, well, God will forgive you. You can hold on to that. Does the enemy do that to you? Does he whisper in your ear? You can, well, that you can hang on to. I mean, he says he's forgiving you all your sin as far as the east is from the west, and he has. But again, hanging on to that, let's see how that works out for King Saul. So it says, but Saul said, 
Saul and the people spared Agag, and what else? The best of the sheep. Okay, it's getting worse. Didn't he kill him to wipe out everything? So he's taking the, the king of the flesh, and then he's keeping the best of the sheep. So what we're going to see here in a minute, the only things he really gets rid of is stuff that's not worth anything. You know, Lord, I'm happy to give up Brussels sprouts for you. I'm all about it, Lord. You can have the Brussels sprouts. Don't touch my tri-tip. Can I get that, right? The mentality is that they're willing to get rid of the stuff that's of no value, but they're not willing to put to death the things that in their mind are going to you know, feed their flesh. And so he keeps the sheep, and it says, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. Okay, here we go. So everything that's of value, he hangs on to from the, what, from the world's perspective. The Lord told him to wipe it out. And guys, anything that takes our eyes off of the Lord, or anything that we make more important than the Lord, is idolatry. Amen? Anything that's more important. Look, should you do your job as unto the Lord, what's the answer? But you never make your career more important than your relationship with God. Anything in your life that can take that place of the Lord, we need to be careful. So Saul held back from doing the complete will of God. He holds on to Agag as either a symbol of pride or even for potential ra uh, ransom. And Agag, his name actually means to burn. It means fiery one or to burn. He held on to to burn, the fiery one, instead of putting him to death. And again, it just symbolizes holding on to the things of the flesh. And so what is he doing here? He's disobeying God. Notice it says there, and he was unwilling to utterly destroy the good things, but everything despised and worthless that he destroyed. So he gave up the worthless stuff for the sake of God. The stuff he didn't want, the stuff that wasn't valuable, the stuff he didn't care about anyway. And then he held on to the things that God had commanded him to let go of and sadly, we're seeing that Saul's disobeying God, and he's going to face the consequences. Look at verse 10, 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I set up Saul as king. What you don't want to hear from God is that I greatly regret with your name after it. Amen? I greatly regret that I allowed Saul to be king. Now remember, he had warned the people if Saul became king that he would be disobedient and he would put them into bondage and he would enslave their children. And he's doing all of it. And now they're all reaping the consequences of crying out for an earthly king instead of putting their faith in Almighty God. And now Saul is being told that, he, that because of the choices he's making, the righteous judgment is coming. He said, he's turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Saul and he cried out to the Lord, all night. I want you to notice something here that's a lesson for all of us. When we see somebody falling into sin, it should break our hearts. Amen? How does, Saul respond? How does uh, Samuel respond? His heart's broken. He's, he's weeping for him. And when, so when we see someone falling into sin, our heart should be to go in a loving way, try to draw that person back into the Lord. Amen? To put our arm around him and say, hey, bro, you're getting off. Can I pray for you? How can I help you? How can I minister to you? Instead, of, we should never rejoice when someone else falls. Amen? That should never be our heart at all. And we see that here in the heart of Samuel. You know what? This was a man that was seeking worldly reputation rather than godly character. If you bring back Agag and you parade him through town, everybody's going to go, dude, our king's a stud. 
Look back, he brought the other king. He's got him chained up. Look at all the sheep and all the good stuff. Look at all the spoils of war that he's brought back to enrich our nation. And they're going to be singing his praises. So instead of trying to be built up in godly character, he's looking more for the reputation and the praise of men. And here's the reality. We could all get caught up in being more wrapped up in the praise of men than being faithful to God. I think that's one of the reasons we don't share our faith as often as we probably could, because we're too afraid of what people might think of us, instead of being faithful to do what God has commanded us. So Saul's motive was self, and what is our motive? When you wake up in the morning, what's your motive for the day? When you live your life, what is the priority? What's the passion of your life? Are you think, is, your, is your motive, here's my prayer every day, I, want, I just want a divine appointment today, Lord, give me one. Let me, let me encourage somebody. Let me share my faith with somebody. I got my hair cut yesterday, as you can probably tell, both of them. And I got my hair cut. And when I went, I was praying for a divine appointment. And I just started talking to this guy who's cutting my hair. And we're like 30 seconds in. And we just start talking. And I, and I said, how you doing? He goes, I'm going through a tough time right now. And you know, I got some things. I, I got a lot of things I'm questioning about my life. And, you know, I just, uh, you know, and, I'm, and, I, and I said, well, I said, well, you know, I, I believe in divine appointments. I prayed for this morning. I believe that God brought us together for a reason. He goes, oh, you believe in God? I said, well, actually, I'm a pastor. He goes, well, actually, most of my questions are from the Bible. Okay, well, that's, that's a God thing. Can I get an amen to that? And so he cut my hair. You know, it doesn't take long, thankfully, right? I don't have much there. So he's cut my hair, and then he stepped back, and we talk about the Lord for 15 minutes. And he starts cutting my hair. And I'm like, by the time we're done, we're hugging each other, and he texted me today, and we're going to get Guys, divine appointments, Amen. Just be available, looking for opportunities to share our faith. And see, right here, what's happening, this was a divine opportunity for King Saul to honor God, to get people's focus back on the Lord, to give God all the glory. Instead, he's going to build a statue to himself, and he's going to parade Agag through town and hear the praises of men. And guess what? Righteous judgment is about to follow. Notice what happens here. In verse 12, so when Samuel rose early, he grieved and he cried out all night. So Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went up to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, for he's gone on around and passed by and down to Gilgal. So he literally was parading Agai on a chain or however he had him tied up. And he's going up and down through the whole territory to make sure everybody sees that he's bringing back the king. And then he builds a monument to himself. Oh, all hail King Saul. And, and he's bringing all the praise to himself. This is idolatry of self. And sadly, that's the greatest idolatry still even today. Verse 13. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord liar. Can I get into that? So he sees Samuel coming. And have you ever noticed how when, you know, like if you're not really walking with the Lord at the time and you see a believer coming, somebody who knows on fire for God, you can you kind of like, you know, get in Jesus mode a little bit, right? So he sees him coming. Oh, praise the Lord. Uh, was he praising the Lord when he built the monument of himself? Was he praising the Lord when he brought King Agag back and marched him through town and heard the praises of men? But then he sees God's prophet. And he's like, oh, praise the Lord. And then he says, yeah, yeah I'm doing everything the Lord commanded me to do. And you can shout from, your, from the rooftop that you're walking in obedience to God, but God knows the truth. Amen? And he's, 
I think here he's convicted. I think as soon as he sees Samuel, a little bit, he's like, uh-oh. I don't think I was supposed to bring any stuff back. Matter of fact, I know it wasn't. Here comes Samuel. Maybe he won't notice the monument. <laughs> he's about to hear the sheep. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, let's keep reading verse 14. But Samuel said, what is this in the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? I did everything the Lord wanted me to do. Bah, in the background, right? And he's like, really, bro? What's that? You were told to wipe everything out. Why are you back here with all the sheep and the oxen? He hasn't even seen Agag yet. It's coming. I just imagine the monument being there with thousands of sheep and oxen all around it, and King Agag's over here chained up, and here comes Samuel. He knows he's in trouble, so he tries to pretend like he's obeying God. Guys, you can shout that you're obeying from a rooftop. God knows the truth. Saul acts. Look what he says here in verse 14 again. What is this bleeding in my ears and the lowing of oxen? And Saul said, now watch this. When confronted with sin... You can do one of three things. You heard me say this a lot. Make excuses, accuse others, or repent, right? Now, let's see what Saul does, okay? He's been confronted. What is this lowing of sheep I hear? And you can't, you know, you turn around, there's thousands of sheep. You can't exactly hide them, right? So what does he do? Watch this, verse 15. And Saul said, they, they, they brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest they bodily destroyed. So here's what he says. He makes it someone else's fault. They did it. And then he makes an excuse for doing it. Oh, and by the way, we just brought them back so we could sacrifice them all. That's like saying, I cheated on my taxes so I could tithe more right? I stole from the neighbors so I could give to the building fund at church. I mean, this is what he's trying to say. He's just trying to say, look, yeah, well, it wasn't even me. It was them. It's their fault. And oh, by the way, but we did it with a motive to give it all to the Lord. Years ago, it was actually the first Sunday I taught. I, was in my, I taught some, a bunch of midweeks, and I taught my first Sunday. I was in my early 20s. And a guy walks up to me during the service and he goes, Pastor John's not here. And, and I'm like five minutes away from teaching my first. I mean, you know, I'm back in the big tick, 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 right? And so he says, come here, I need to talk to you. I go, what happened? He goes, one of the guys who was passing the offering, I saw him when he went to the back. He took a, a handful of the money and stuck it in his Bible. Really? <laughs> so I have to go into this room, this young guy sitting there, and I, oh, and I go, bro, Really? And we open up his Bible, and there's a bunch of money in his Bible. And he said, oh, well, I, I took the money so I could help uh, some of the homeless people near my house. He was pulling a saw. Amen? I, you, well, no, I, well, yeah, but I did it for a good reason. And I'm like, really, bro? It's my first time teaching adults in my life. I've been, I took a whole week off work. I've been studying, and I'm back here doing this during the last worship song. Right? The good news is his father was a police officer. So I went and tapped his dad on the shoulder and I said, hey, your son's got something he wants to tell you. Head on back over there. And I just let his dad take care of it. But the point is that sometimes we will make excuses for our sin and try to paint it in a godly light somehow. Somehow we're doing it for the Lord. And notice what he says here. Here's a real big verse right here. Notice what he says, the Lord what your God? The Lord your God. Amen? He doesn't say the Lord my God. We brought him back to make sacrifices to the Lord, your God. That gives an idea where Saul's heart is. Amen? Would you ever say that as a believer? 
I would never say that. When I talk about the Lord, I, I belong to him. Amen? And I praise his name. And sadly, we see, and you know what? When I look at verse 14 and verse 15, the verse that comes to mind is your sin will surely find you out. Amen? He thinks he's gotten away with it. He's getting the praise of men. A little bit of time's gone by. And here comes Samuel, bleeding of sheep. He makes excuses. He tries to, to, to blame it on others. He's justifying himself. He's condemning others. And judgment always should begin with ourselves. You know, he could have repented. Could he have repented here? What's the answer? Would God have forgiven him if he had truly repented? What's the answer? Yeah. But he doesn't. And you know, when, again, when we're confronted with sin, we can make excuses, accuse others, or repent. His true motive here was material gain. It wasn't religious sacrifice. And, but even if it had been for sacrifice, God, good intentions do not justify bad actions. So then we go into verse 16, and it says this. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. I'm going to give you the pastor day paraphrase. Saul, shut up. He's talking, he's blaming it. Hey, we, well, hey, we, I was them. They did it. And oh, but we really brought it so we could make sacrifices. And that's what, shut up. Sam is getting some righteous little bit of anger here. Amen. Like, dude, really? Just shutty town. Okay, stop. Stop talking. This is ridiculous what you're saying right now. Just be quiet. Then he says this. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And this is the first intelligent thing that Saul says in this whole chapter. Speak on. Um, I was hanging out with the Lord, and he said something to me last night. And Saul's like, okay, tell me what he said. Speak on. Again, his sin will find him out. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of all the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? So the Bible says in Psalm 147 that the Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked down to the ground. Those who are given honor and wealth must remember how they began, sinful and wicked, so they don't think more highly of themselves than they ought to. Proverbs 16 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So remember I told you in chapters 11 and 12, he started off really well and he won some battles. But remember when they first went to introduce him, he was hiding in the equipment. And he wasn't, you know, pointing at himself. And he was in a position of humility and was heeding the words of, of Samuel, the word of God. And what happens is he starts to win some victories. Then he starts to get full of himself and he becomes impatient. Then he becomes prideful. Now he's walking in flat out disobedience to the word of God. And so what does Samuel do? He's reminding him, hey, remember when you were humble? And do you remember how God used you when you were humble? You know, that's a word for all of us. Amen? Is any, anytime we start to think we've got anything to do with anything that God's doing, we're just tools in the hands of the master. And you know what? If God does anything in us or through us, he alone gets all the glory. Amen? But sadly, because of his pride, we're going to see that destruction, sadly, is coming. Verse 18, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. That word consumed there in the original language can also mean exterminated. He said, wipe them all out. Notice he said, you're going on a mission. You know why? Because God had already won the battle. 
See, the battle belongs to the Lord. So when we go out and engage in battle, God already won. You know, we just show up and obey the Lord. And God's the one who does the work. God's the one who brings the increase. Amen? And he said, look, you're just going out on a mission. You just step out in faith and do what the Lord's told you to do. Just show up at the barbershop at 11 o'clock, right? I mean, you, you just show up and God's the one who did all of that. I love that before. I told him, I told, uh, I told uh, the young man, I said, uh, you know, it's amazing. God, before the foundation of the world, knew that I was going to come get my haircut right now. And there was going to be nobody in line and we we're going to have an hour to talk about Jesus. He's like, yeah, that's awesome. See, God does that, doesn't he? On divine appointments, we don't want to miss out on God's highest. And here's the sad part. The sad part here is that Saul was being used mightily. And then he let his pride get in the way. And then, he's, then now he's going to deal with the consequences. Notice what it says in verse 19. They were supposed to be, you're supposed to fight against them until they're exterminated. Why then do you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? We cannot serve God and money. Amen? Number one reason we work and live where we do is to glorify God. And where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. So why did he try to convert God's calling into a profit-making venture? Gee, nobody does that in churches today, do they? It's tragic, isn't it? It's so tragic to see how some people have used the, the Word of God and the opportunity to minister to people into an opportunity to literally just enrich themselves. The whole prosperity doctrine and all that stuff that takes place today, and that does so much harm to the church, amen? You know, when, you, when you're, a, I've been a pastor 35 years, and every time a pastor falls, I have my unsaved friends calling me. Dude, one of your buddies, see what happened? Not my buddy, can I get amen to that? They just lump us all together. By the way, Charles Stanley's in heaven, Amen. Talk about finishing strong. 90 years old, solid as they come, just taught the word of God and did it without compromise. Praise the Lord for him. Amen? There's not a doubt in my mind. He closed his eyes on earth. He opened them up in glory, and he heard the seven words that we all long to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen? But he just taught the word. And, he, and you know what? He was a humble guy. He didn't try to accolades for himself. He's just a humble man. Gave God all the glory. Boy, King Saul could have learned from Charles Stanley. Amen? So here's King Saul. He's told to consume them all. Why did you swoop down? Why did you keep it for yourself? Again, his sin is being revealed. And then verse 20, and Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. This sentence has got so many messes in it, and I can't see straight. He says, I did exactly what the Lord told me to do, and I brought back the king, which he told him not to do. And yet I've destroyed all the rest of the Amalekites, which he also didn't do. So, guys, when we stand before the Lord, does God know when you're lying? Can there be anything more foolish than to tell God you're doing stuff you're not? Can there be anything dumber than trying to convince God that you're doing? Stop it. He already knows. Amen? And he's the one that we should be the most transparent with because he knows already. He knows the, the thoughts and intents of our heart. You know what? He could have repented here. Instead, he denied that he sinned altogether. I didn't sin. I did what the Lord told me. I'm, I'm obeying God. 
I'm doing exactly what the Lord wants me to do. And the Lord, again, of course, knows better, and so does Samuel. When conviction comes, he makes an excuse for his action. A sinful man is wiser in his own eyes than God himself. And in dealing with the flesh, we think we know better than God, even to the point of viewing our flesh as a good thing. I brought back the king of Agag. It's a good thing. Saul tries to sanctify his sinful behavior. And there's a lot of people that, that when right now confronted with sin, they're, what they're trying to do is make the Bible agree with their behavior. And see, when we tolerate people's sinful behavior, we're propping up what they want to be and keeping them from who God called them to be. Amen? And so what will happen is we'll say, we should just talk. Now, should we love everybody? What's the answer? But don't tolerate my sin and I won't tolerate yours. Can I get an amen to that? And we're living in a time right now where they will challenge, show me in the Bible where it says homosexuality is wrong. You show them 40 verses. Well, those are all translated. No, that's what the Bible says. Show me in the Bible where it says sleep with your girlfriends. The Bible says fortification. It's the sin of the... Show me the Bible where it says gossip. Here it is in the Bible. And what we want to do is we want to change the word of God to line up with our feelings instead of changing our behavior to line up with the word of God. Amen? And again, we can't do this on our own. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. We're not going to achieve it until we get to heaven. And as we say often, Christians aren't sinless, but we should sin less. Amen? Because now we view sin differently and we hate it. And here's Saul. It's not hating it. He's, making, he's continuing to make excuses for it. And at the end of the text, you're going to see something pretty incredible in how his life comes to an end. Verse 22. Verse 21, excuse me. But the people took the plunder. There it is. Who's he blaming on? It's not his fault. The people took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He's, he's just going to keep repeating the lie and hoping that eventually the Lord will buy it. That's not going to happen. Or that Samuel will buy it. Then it says in verse 20, So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now you know where that verse came from. We've all quoted that verse. Where did it come from? It came from him coming back and saying, We brought all of these animals so we could sacrifice them to the Lord. But you know what? God is more concerned with obedience than us making sacrifices, than us fulfilling religious rituals. Amen? Now, sacrifice was godly, and it was all pointing to Jesus. But you got to remember that it was only through disobedience that sacrifice came, right? They'd obey. There would be no need for sacrifice. It's to obey, it's better than sacrifice, and to heed in the fat of rams, to listen to the word of Lord, to respond to the word of God. Obedience is the highest form of worship. More than any sacrifice you could ever make is being obedient to the Lord. He wanted a humble and sincere obedience to the will of God. And again, because it is the highest form of worship. Religiosity becomes nothing more than empty rituals if we walk in open disobedience to the word of God. God is more glorified and self more denied by obedience than by sacrifice. The Lord doesn't need your stuff. He just wants you. Amen? If man had been obedient to begin with, there would have been no need for the ultimate sacrifice. Sacrifice is only necessary because of the sinfulness and disobedience 
of man. Now notice what he says here in verse 23. I mean, he's just going to, he said, so to, hold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed in the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of what? Witchcraft. When you walk in open rebellion, it's the equivalent of being a witch, being demonic. So this is what he's telling. Now what's interesting, uh, we'll talk about the end of the text. Just remember witchcraft, okay? We're going to get back to it in a minute. And he says, the stubbornness is iniquity, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Okay, now here's where Saul's going to wake up. Because you know what? Often, when you're confronted with your sin, you'll just blow it off until you find out that the consequences are going to be heavy, and they're going to be now. See, up to this point, he's still the king. Up to this point, he's got a monument. Up to this point, people are praising his name, and, he's letting, and he keeps saying, well, I did what was right. I brought back the king. It wasn't me. It was the other people. He's not taking the blame, and now he lets them know, okay, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. You're as bad as a, a soothsayer or a psychic or anyone else, and stubbornness is as the sin of iniquity and idolatry. Anybody else here ever stubborn besides me? I'm the only, I'm, I'm so, you're all so stubborn, you won't raise your hand. Can I get him into that? <laughs> Can we just be stubborn? Can we dig our feet in the ground sometimes, right? Like, I don't care, I'm going to be right this time. You know, and, and humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. But here he is. Is he being stubborn? He keeps telling the same lie over and over to a guy who, who hangs out with God. Amen? Samuel's talking to the Lord. And Samuel comes back and he keeps telling him the same lie over and over and over again. It sounds like teenagers, right? You know, just won't repent, won't stay stubborn, says he didn't do anything wrong, and now the consequences are going to get heavy. Saul is not going to repent until his position is under threat. When man does not like the truth that's given to him by God, he'll seek uh, less convicting answers elsewhere, and we're going to see that take place. In 1 Samuel 28, 28, Saul is bummed out because his kingdom is taken from him, and he goes to the witch at Endor to get her advice. Well, as long as it's like witchcraft, I guess I better go visit the witch. I'm already there, right? And the reality is, it's so sad, and this is what we will do sometimes. Someone will preach the truth, do it with boldness. The word, you'll open the Word of God, and God will convict you, or some, you know, the Holy Spirit's bringing conviction. And when you don't like the counsel you're getting or the pushback to the lifestyle you're living, what do you do? You keep going and finding somebody until somebody will tell you what you want to hear. Amen? And that's sad because that's why you know, social media is such a disaster. But you go online and you see these people telling people that their sinful behavior is just fine. You know, God made you that way. It's okay that you act that way. And it's tragic. And the sad part is the sin has consequences. And so Saul admits, should admit, no, look at verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Now, isn't that amazing? What did it take for him to say, I have sinned? What did it take? You're not going to be king anymore, bro. Ripping the kingdom. Oh, oh, I've sinned. And that's that mentality where we only repent when we're afraid we're going to lose something. 
So it's all his fleshly, it's his fleshly desire to be king. It's his fleshly passion to be praised by men. And when that's being taken away from him, then and only then does he say, I have sinned. So this is not real repentance because true repentance is turning away from your behavior and surrendering your life fully to the Lord. Amen? Amen. And he continues on in his behavior. And now he only, you know, full repents. It's kind of like the guy to get, or the guy or the gal, someone gets caught committing adultery. And then their spouse says, that's it, I'm divorcing, I'm taking the kids, I'm taking the house. Oh, I'm sorry. You did, you weren't sorry yesterday. It's only after you got caught, and then you want forgiveness because you're going to lose the house, and you're not going to be able to see the kids as much, and it's all because of the consequence of your choices. Amen? And that's exactly what's taking place here with Saul. So he's saying, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Didn't he just two verses say, I did everything the Lord told me to do? I obeyed God. I even brought Agag back. I did exactly what the Lord told me to do. Now, the next verse, taking, you're not going to be king anymore. Oh, I sinned against God. Double-minded man. He said, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's still making excuses. This is another proof that he's not repenting because he didn't say, you know what? I failed. You're right. Could he still have repented? What do you think? Could God still have Allowed him to be king if he truly repented. What's the answer? But he still doesn't do it. See, we find out his real heart when he says at the end of that verse there, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Guys, that's, a great, that's underlined in my Bible. Fear God, not men. I wrote my margin. When we fear men, we're going to make horrible choices. Amen? We don't fear men. We fear God. So Saul admits that he's, and again, he's more concerned with what men thought than what God commanded. And even in repentance, Saul places blame on others and makes excuses. I did it because I feared people. Well, that's not going to work when you stand before God and say, I feared men more than I feared you. Verse 24, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Saul seeks forgiveness from Samuel. And there are many today who get caught in sin and seek peace with the church and its minister rather than the Lord. Why does he want Saul to go back, Samuel to go back with him? Because he wants to be able to stand next to Samuel in front of the people and appear like he's still in good standing with the Lord when he's not. And guys, when we sin, we need to go to the Lord. That's where we go, straight to the Lord, cry out to him, seek forgiveness from him, make it right with him first and foremost. And sadly, too often, we want to run to men and get forgiveness from them. Saul knew without Samuel standing there next to him, he would lose the people. And Saul's, again, he sought man's forgiveness instead of God's. Verse 26, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being the king over Israel. The way of the transgressor is hard. Amen? He was given numerous opportunities to repent. He kept pointing at everybody else. He kept proclaiming that he was obeying God. And eventually, the consequences of his sins came. Saul pronounces God's judgment upon Saul. God knew Saul's heart. He wasn't fooled by his false repentance. Verse 27, And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Saul is holding on to Samuel because he feared that if Samuel rejected him, so would the people. And again, his focus is on the world. He's more concerned about being accepted by men than being faithful to God. 
And one of the things is we're seeing that our world is getting further and further away from the Lord. It's going to be easier to differentiate between who's walking with God and who's not. Amen? And we need to be careful not to, we need to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. For me to say it before, we want the boat in the water, but we don't need water in the boat, right? We want to minister to the world, but be nothing like it. And we, there's going to be times we're going to have to make a stand for the Lord, and it may cost us something. We saw it with COVID, right? We, we kept having church and threats of arrest and fines and all that. And again, who do you obey, God or man? And we need to stand with the Lord, amen? amen? And sadly, we see that Saul here was more worried about what men thought, and that's why he doesn't truly repent. Now, notice what it says here. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. He tore, you tore my robe, he's torn the kingdom, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Who's he talking about? King David. King David, we know, will be anointed king, and King David will be the one who is the right, the right king. And we're going to see that God, Saul will continue to reign for a long time after this, even though the kingdom's been ripped from him. Again, more opportunity to repent, but he won't have the power that he would have had if he had walked faithful to the Lord. Notice what it says in verse 29. And also the strength of Israel, that's a, that's a, a term for God Almighty, will not lie or relent for he is not a man that he should relent. Some of your versions say repent. So what he's saying is, he, try, he grabs a hold of him, and he's like begging him to get God to change his mind. By the way, let me clue you in. God never changes his mind. Aren't you glad? Amen? Now, some people struggle with that. Wait a minute. God doesn't change his mind? You know why he doesn't change his mind? Because he's perfect, and if he changed his mind, he would have been wrong at some point. He's never been wrong. Amen? So when we pray, we're not trying to change God's mind. We're trying to change our heart and align our heart with his. Amen? And he lets him know, this is God's fine. Now, can God pronounce judgment and then show grace? What's the answer? But he never changed his mind because he always knew he was going to show grace. Amen? So he doesn't change his mind. So here's what he's doing is he's, he's letting him know, bro, this isn't going to change. God's brought judgment. He's not going to relent. Now, some people like to use this verse that God is not a man. Anybody ever brought this verse to you to show you that Jesus isn't God? I've had people at my door go, see, God is not a man. It says it right here. That means Jesus isn't God because God's not a man. This is talking about God the Father right here, by the way. Can I get an amen to that? God the Father's not a man, but Jesus is, and there's one God in three persons. Amen? So I had a guy come to my door not too long ago. And he goes, I'm, a, I'm studying theology, and I'm just asking Bible questions to people. I'm like, okay, divine appointment. This is a while back. And I go, okay. And so I just said, before you ask me questions, where are you at with Jesus? Who's Jesus? Is he God? He's like, yeah. See, see the creator or creator? He's a creator. See the son of God? Yes. Is salvation only through him? Absolutely. What about the Holy Spirit? We go through this whole list of things, and I'm like, okay, bro. I think we're on the same team here. Good. Beautiful. Praise the Lord. Go ahead and ask your questions. And he goes, so, you know there's more than one God, right? Okay, um, we just moved into Coltville, bro. You now belong to a cult. He said, look, let us make man in our image. There's more than one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. To take the text out of context, all you left is a con, bro. Amen? And then he, he, he had some of the... Then he said, and you only take communion on Passover, and you have to be baptized in our baptismal, and you have to do this. And I'm like, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Amen? When you start adding to the cross of Calvary, and he goes, you, believe, you think I'm in a cult? I said, I don't think you're in a cult. I know you're in a cult. Wherever that, wherever that seminary is, quit tomorrow. Amen? 
Let God be let man, God be true and every man a liar. Amen. God doesn't change his mind. We know who God is, right? And so, but guys, the only way we're going to recognize the lie is if we know the truth. My heart broke. His name's Ivan. This was like a year ago. Pray for Ivan. I just I thought about him today when I was reading this for whatever reason, and I started praying for him. I don't know where he is. Ivan, I hope you're watching, bro. Jesus loves you. Get out of that cold if you're still there. Amen. Now notice. Watch what happens. The strength of Israel will not relent. So now watch what he says. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people, before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Again, does this sound like true repentance? What's the answer? He says, I have sinned, but then notice what he says right after it. He said, I have sinned, please forgive me. Yet honor me now. I have sinned. Now come up here and honor me and stand next to me so all the people still think I'm the king. And then he says right after that, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, return with me that I may worship the Lord, your God. Saul. Saul. He started off humble. Pride. Disobedience. Impatience. God in the way. And now he's in a place where he's so, so far from the Lord. Saul's repentance is insincere as he seeks to be honored before the people rather than humbled and shamed. I have sinned, honor me. Should have been, I have sinned, God forgive me. Amen? I have sinned, now honor me. Come stand over by my statue. Let's take a selfie, right? <laughs> right? He's like, let's, let, just, just prop me up. It's okay. I, I said the words you wanted to hear. Guys, it's not the words that we say. It's a transformation of our heart that matters. Amen? Now watch what happens. It's about to get gnarly. Watch. So Samuel, verse 31, turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Now, again, Saul worships the Lord, but we know his true motivation. And we're going to see it from his continued actions. He's worshiping the Lord because he wants to be in right standing before the people. He's not worshiping the Lord because he's repented of his sin and wants to be right with God. Then Samuel, verse 32, said, Bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came out cautiously. And Agag, surely the bitterness of death is past. So when you're chained up, and you're brought to the foreign land of the people that have conquered you, often they will use you as a prize, and then they will execute you in front of everyone. And so Agag thinks when they go to get him out of his cell or wherever they've got him bound up, and they bring him out, and he's scared to death, this is the end of my life, until he sees Samuel. Samuel at this point is in his 80s. So when he sees this old prophet standing up there, he thinks, oh, okay, I think I might get by, get through this. Maybe I'm going to survive now. Notice what it says there. The death has passed. Well, let's see what old man Samuel does. Look at verse 33. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag into pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So Agag's the king of the flesh, and how does he get destroyed? With what? And swords a picture of what? The word of God. Amen? 
Remember, we talked about three ways of putting the flesh to death. We saw the victory of the Amalekites through prayer and through fellowship, and now we see the destruction of the king of the flesh, and it only came through the sword, which is a picture of the word of God. Amen? And he comes out and hacks him into pieces. Why? Because God had commanded, remember that Agag, and again, we look at that in our heart, you know, we can be tender toward him, but the reality is that Agag was leading the people that were slaughtering the innocent, that had 300 years to repent, and they shook their face at God, and they mocked God, and they were idolaters, and they were vicious, murderers, and God bringing righteous judgment. And that righteous judgment didn't come until he had an opportunity to surrender his life to the Lord. And every person that spends eternity in hell is going to have to have told God no over and over. They have to run over the cross of Christ to get there. They're shaking their fists to God going, no, I don't want you in my life. No, I want to live my own life. God, get away from me. I don't believe in you. I want nothing to do with you. Stay away from me. Don't talk about that God to me. Don't talk to me about the Lord. I don't believe in that nonsense. I'm an atheist. I believe in science, whatever. And they're going to talk like this their whole life and shake their fists at God their entire life. And then they're going to stand before Almighty God and he's going to give them what they wanted, which was to be away from him. Amen? You can't shake your fists at God your whole life. And then think that somehow there's going to be mercy when it's too late. Now, again, it's not too late as long as you're breathing in and out. You could still be saved. But Agag was chopped into pieces. Notice it says, Then Samuel went up to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Saul went more to see, no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Saul, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Notice again, Samuel weeps. He's not rejoicing. He's not excited about the fact that he fell. I want to I give you one last thing, though, for you to think about. So Agag, a king used to being treated with honor, felt relieved when he came out and saw the elderly Samuel. And again, what happens? He thinks, maybe I have a chance to get things right. And he gets put to death. So the sword is a representation of God's word. So it's prayer, worship, surrender. Fellowship brings accountability. It's the word of God. And today, some of us have an agag in our life that needs to be cut to pieces. Amen? It's just between you and the Lord. You know if you've got a sin that is hidden from everybody, and only you know it and God knows it. And it's time to put that thing to death. Amen? To obey is better than sacrifice. Now, Saul's eventual death in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, Saul goes out to battle and he gets killed. And somebody brings news of his death to, get, to David. And guess what? It's an Amalekite. So if he had killed all the Amalekites, amen? So because he did not put the flesh to death, the flesh killed him. Amen? Do you think there's any chance, you think it's random that it was an Amalekite after he's told to kill all the Amalekites? Isn't it amazing how the, the, word, the Bible rocks, amen? That it's all put together this way for a reason. And the same is true for us. We need to put the, and again, it's, it's not us trying good works to, to, to earn heaven, but because we're born again, we should love God and hate sin, amen? And you know the sin I hate the most? The sin in my life, amen? It's easy to point at other people's sin. Holiness for me, grace for everyone else. That should be the heart of God. Let me close with this. Have you guys ever heard of Keith Green? If you raise your hand, you're old. Yeah. All the old people got their hands up. 
So Keith Green died in a plane crash, I think, in the 70s. But he has a song that he wrote out of this, out of this chapter. I'll turn it to you quick, and then we'll close in prayer. To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. I hear you say that I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. Well, you speak of grace and my love so sweet, how you thrive on milk but reject my meat. And I can't help weeping at how it will be if you keep on ignoring my word. Will you pray to prosper and succeed, but your flesh is something I just can't feed. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sundays and Wednesday nights, because if you can't come to me every day, don't bother coming at all. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want hearts of fire, not your prayers of ice. And I'm coming quickly to give back to you according to what you have done. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to all of our hearts. Lord, show us the agags in our life. Help us, Lord, not to be satisfied with saved souls and wasted lives, not to allow habitual sin to remain in our lives. Lord, help us to be accountable. Help us to be men and women of prayer. Help us, Lord, to put it to death through the word of God and walking in the, in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just thank you for the examples in the word, these New Testament truths seen so clearly in Old Testament events. And Lord, minister to every heart. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said,